really believe is that our words define us. Who's with me on that? If you sort of say, oh, look, today's going to be hopeless, guess what? You've set up your day as being a hopeless day. The reality is the power of our words is incredible. God created by the power of His Word, not just by His imagination or thought, but by the words in which He spoke. And as He spoke, so it was. We are made in the image of God, correct? Straight in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. But the reality is the power of our words is quite incredible, and we are defined by the words and what we say. We can say this year is going to be, ah, it's probably going to be the same. Like, can you remember last year, Pastor Hartley probably and Pastor Nat got up here and said, you know, guys, this is going to be the greatest year. This is going to be the most tremendous year of your life. 2017 is going to be life-changing. Has anyone heard that from Pastor Hart or Pastor Nat over the years? Maybe 2016 they might have said that. They probably have said it every year. I've been listening to Pastor Phil say that for 35 years. Every year is going to be the greatest year. But what about if it's not? And some of us sometimes can sit here and go, yeah, he said that last year. But this year, going to be phenomenal. <laughs> if it's any indicator from last year, the year before and the one before that, ain't going to be any different. Guess what? It's going to be exactly the same because you hold that attitude and you speak that way. The reality is of 2018 will be defined on the attitude by the thought, by the, the intention, but by the word you speak about and speak into. And the reality for us for this year, irrespective of where a month in, you can change. You can adopt the Chinese New Year and say, you know what, I'm going to make a difference this year and I'm going to change things. My body hasn't responded. I've been sick. Why can't you begin to speak into your body, not rely on everybody else to be speaking into it, and say, my body is going to be in the best shape for this year because I am going to speak in it and release the God within me into my circumstances, into my body, into my mind, into my finances, into my life. That's what the Word of God is all about. The Word of God doesn't live on the pages of the Bible. It is something that we read, we ingest, then we speak it. And when we speak it, we release it. We're not talking, you can talk about anything. You can read the telegraph and talk it out. Not a lot of good news in it. But the reality is in the Word of God, there is incredibly good news and hope. And the fact is, as believers, this year is for 2018. Let's be believers and start believing by the speaking of the words in which we say. Amen? Amen? And there it is, I'm feeling the love. So in saying that is that we are defined by the words in which we speak. But you know what? When are the words which probably are the most profound words ever spoken by yourself? What words in which you speak? Was it the day when you were born, when you were created? A new child entering into the world usually has something to say. It usually just goes, Wah! that's a point of entry. Just a scream and a cry. I've adopted that over the years. Not when I was a baby also, but in times of challenge. It's like, ah, no! We enter that way, but probably some of the most profound words in which we speak are not the words of the highs and lows in our journey, but probably the most profound are the words in which we conclude our life with. Our final words are probably the most powerful words that we'll ever speak. Why? Because it is the summation in our... Con Inclusion in life 
and it really be, will be the conclusion of everything that we personally have believed. It would be our focus, our passion, our loves, and our fears. All of those things will be communicated in that final moment, in that last possible moment of life that we have. Why? Because we want to leave a deposit. And depending on where we stand in this life, whether we believe in God or not, your final words will be final. And those words are probably the most profound of all words that you will ever speak. So in saying that, let me just read out a few individuals' final words before they departed this life. I love Winston Churchill's final words. He said this, I'm bored with it all now. What was that all about? Was he talking about his wife? Could have been, I don't know. What was that all about? He was talking and referring to a passion that he had, a focus that he has was to change the face of politics and to be a man who brought change and also save a nation. But at the end of it, he said, I'm bored with it all now. Why was he referring to that? Because he was always seen as only the man when he spoke, he would speak and actually assist a nation in a time of war, but he was never going to be a prime minister in a time of peace. Incredible words, focus and attention came out in those last, those last minutes. What about passion, someone with passion? Leonardo da Vinci said this, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. I guess the Mona Lisa isn't good enough the most recognized piece of artwork in the world today. Here is a man, his final concluding thoughts was about all that was his passion. His life, his love was about his artwork and how good it had been in his mind. In this case, again, he'd missed the mark with the Mona Lisa. But as I said, still today, the most recognized and valued piece of artwork on the planet. Incredible. We are consumed because of our passions. Also, Finally, too, there's our loves. Good old John Wayne. Good old John Wayne. What was his final words? Well, he said it to his third wife, but it was still a good couple of words, but it wasn't his first wife, his third wife, but he said this. He said, you are my girl, and I'll always love you. Again, your final words would be the things which consume, that you love, you, you embrace your passions, your focus, your life been sold out to. And there are also fears. And I love this because sometimes, depending on where we sit in life, sometimes the things in which we have believed come under question under the microscope in those final moments of our life. Some of the gentlemen I'm about to read from now are a man who basically had set their life on course of rejecting the gospel and basically saying, again, there is no God, or if there is a God and deism is a belief that God created. When he created, he stepped away from his creation and said, good luck, guys, have a great life. And a lot of these gentlemen I'm about to speak are men who committed their life. It was their focus. It was their passion. In some ways, their love to reject the gospel and reject Christ himself. One of those gentlemen's name was Thomas Paine. He was a leading atheist in the Americas and in the American colonies. He wrote the book, the age of reason, which basically said it's more about reason than it's got anything to do with God. Incredible. He said this in his final moments, 
Stay with me for God's sake. I cannot bear to be left alone. Oh Lord, help me. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? I love this. A man who has rejected God now wants to introduce him in his final moments. He actually is bringing God back in. Oh God, why have you? Wait a minute. I rejected God. Now he wants God back in and saying, why have you? Isn't that fascinating? Your final moments will be, you can push God away in the normality of life, but in your final moments, you may have pushed him away. He'll re-enter. And the question will still remain, is there a God? And let me assure every single one of you, yes, there is. Oh Lord, help me, oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them that the age of reason had never been published. Lord, help me, Christ, help me. No, don't leave me, stay with me a little longer. Send even a child to stay with me. For if I am on the edge of hell alone, I'm here alone and no one is with me. For now I know if ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. Here is a man who wrote, who rejected Acknowledged through deism, there wasn't a true atheist going back over the centuries. That's more of a more current position and belief. They believed that it was created by a God, but a God who had no interest in his creation. Yet here in this man's final moment, he's saying, you know what? I think I've made, made an error. But how many people were influenced by that thought and by those words? What about Sir Thomas Scott, the Chancellor of England? Incredible articulate man who was able to speak and revolutionize again the parliament within England in his time. He said this, until this moment I thought there was neither God nor hell. Now I know and feel that there are both and I am doomed to perdition, but by a just one almighty God. A man who rejected, but in his final moments reintroduces the thought and then sees his position of loss and distance from a living almighty God. One final gentleman, which we'll all know, his name was Voltaire, a famous anti-Christian atheist of the 17th century, a French gentleman who spoke so clearly and wrote so much about, again, dismissing God as having any interest in our life at all. He said this, I'm abandoned by God and man. Again, here he is dismissing and pushing God away, pulling God back into the equation. Fascinating, isn't it? That in those final moments, you can reject God your whole life, but the final moment will come. But what about if there is? Why? Because we are made in the image of God and we cannot deny what is in us. I'm abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will just give me six months of life. He said this to his doctor. He told him it could, be, could not be done. There was nothing more that medicine could do for him. Then he said, then I shall die and go to hell. His nurse who stayed with him all night before he passed away said that he cried out all night, forgive me, Christ, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. A man who had rejected Christ now asking for forgiveness. The greatest statement, and no matter where we stand in life, as we approach 2018, look into this year, 
Don't push God away. Pull God in. Introduce Him into your all your day activity, into all that you believe. As Pastor Hartley said before, we come here, we rejoice, we think about God, but so many have pushed Him away. Why? Because they have not truly understood what He has done and what He has given for us. Incredible. So in thinking of all of this, someone who is important to us and why we gather here this morning, Jesus said many things. And again, it's mentioned in Luke and in the book of Acts is there's not enough. There is so much written in what Jesus had said, but he said so much. But what were some of the most profound statements that Jesus had said? He said incredible things the Sermon on the Mount, many moments to his disciples privately, to individuals, to, to, again, Roman officials, to uh, religious leaders. He said so much. Yet, as I have said to you, some of the most profound things will not be the words in which we say along the course of life, but the final words in which we conclude our life with. So what was Jesus's final words? Well, very quickly, let's understand this and think about this, is that Again, we come to church and think, Jesus died for me. He gave his life. We see that in great scripture mentioned by Ben earlier on. Again, we see it. It's like, yes, he gave his life. But what did that look like? And you have to understand to hear correctly what was taking place in Jesus's life before he said his concluding statements puts things in perspective because sometimes we lose sight of what he has done for us. You see, at 3 a.m. in the morning, he was arrested, and for the next three hours, he is again, he is questioned. During that period of time, he is again accused, he is falsely accused, he is betrayed. So many things happening by the voice of others who have rejected him. And at that three, during that three-hour period, even some of his best friends who said, I'll never leave you, are absent, dismissive of him, even curse him. And he's listening to the cursing going on just down in that small foyer area below the the colonnade in which he stood. But there again, you see, Jesus was accused falsely. People were paid to accuse him and say things he never said. Others said they'd never leave him. But again, close friends even betray him. Yet in that moment, he is still able to come to a final moment to saying some of the most profound statements on the planet. From 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. for three hours, he is brutalized in a way we cannot even imagine. Again, he is not, again, we see those incredible artistic expression by some of the great artists over the years of Jesus on the cross, like, and he's there with a loincloth and a little bit of a trickle from where his side had been pierced and a bit of blood from the side and a crown of thorns. He looked nothing like that. And so often we, we have been impressed by impressionists and by artists of how, well, it didn't look that bad. But literally, you would not recognize him from what the brutalization which had gone through the process of crucifixions by the Romans. Understand this, the Romans understood and knew the art of how to prevent rebellion. They used crucifixion and the leading up to crucifixion and the process to ensure that people would think twice about rebelling against them. They would brutalize them to the point that they again would allow fear to consume people by what they saw was coming to them more so than the experience of what would take place. 
They knew how to brutalize, how to put fear into men and women to the point they would never, ever rebel against their empire. They had the art well protected. You see, Jesus did not look like some of the romanticized pictures and photos that we have in our minds of what Jesus looked like. His face was brutalized that, again, you would not even be able to recognize his face because of the beating. You would not recognize his body because literally from the lashes hitting, his flesh would be torn from his body. That again, there'd be literally like a torn shirt would be his body and flesh pulled from his body. Again, not to kill him, but to increase the intensity of pain during the process of crucifixion. The nails driven through his feet and hands perfectly positioned where again, again, our hands and our feet and those places again, the nerves which run through our body, you touch your foot, you touch your hand, the nerves throughout the rest of your body would respond and cry out in pain. You see, Jesus is about to make some incredible statements and we sometimes hear his words, but we don't appreciate what he has gone through to even make those statements. If I was the Messiah, it might be a little bit of a different story. After all my friends who said, I'll never leave you, reject you, curse you, abandon you. People who said, I'll never do. They may, but I never will. People who said, we believe in you. We believe in the Messiah. Gone, now accusing, calling out, crucify him, crucify him. All of those people. And then seeing all those people before you, who have just caused your body to feel the pain like no man has felt pain before. Again, on a cross, he doesn't have a loincloth. He is naked, the highest degree of shame that any man could be, naked on the cross, not in some little tucked away corner, on the main road where people coming in and going out would see you, your body brutalized, naked, the highest form of shame. In those days, the Romans knew how to ensure that there would not be rebellion. Here he is upon the cross. And if I was on the cross in that position, the scenario would go a little bit like this. Father, they have deserted me. They have spoken falsely of you and I. They have brutalized me and my body is crying out in pain. So, Father, wipe them out and let's start again. That's the great French messianic approach of all of this. Not exactly what you'd want. Aren't you glad that Jesus is Jesus? Not Greg, because the Greg approach would not exactly bring the result everyone was looking for. So what was Jesus' word upon the cross, his final words? I love this, the final one as he is up there, naked, body, his body crying out in pain. The very first things he says is this, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm going, wait a minute. They know exactly what they're doing. No. He chose to overlook. He chose to overlook their knowing and chose to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They did not know the implications of their actions. Yet he was still willing to offer forgiveness from that cross to men who had brutalized him, for people who had said, I'll never leave you, abandoned, absent. Incredible. The final words of a man are some of the most profound, but those words are some of the most life-changing words on the planet. 
and to us as we gather here this morning. Those words have eternal consequences for every single one of us. Forgive them. Incredible. You see, the gospel starts in forgiveness. The very first words in which Jesus uses his most profound statement, opening statement, is the offer of forgiveness for all, irrespective of what they have done and where they are in life. The second thing he says upon the cross, he is there and there is two other criminals alongside, one to his left and one to his right. And one says, if you are the Messiah, help yourself and help us. Get yourself down and help us. Get us down as well. If you are truly the Messiah. Then the other one said, do you not fear God? For this man is an innocent man. Isn't this incredible? And then Jesus said today, you will be with me in paradise. What does that say to me about Jesus' final words? Never, ever, ever, ever give up on people we are praying for and believing for to come to Christ. Never. Jesus starts with the forgiveness, but our responsibility is not to give up on those. Yeah, but Greg, you don't know my Uncle Bert. Uncle Bert, oh, he is a case. Man, he was a case. Ah, he knocked his wife around, knocked her up really bad all the time. Kids hated him. He can't be in heaven. Went and saw him two weeks. He was cursing God and everybody in the bedroom. Cursing everybody. He's gone to hell for sure. How do you know? How do you know? You see, we make judgments of people, not our place. Our place is to hold the position, to hold a statement Jesus has given to us, is to still offer. Today, you can be, by asking Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, simply by acknowledging Him. And it's never, ever too late. How many people have said, if I go into church, the roof will fall in. Rubbish. Strong structures. I haven't seen any churches fall in recently when unbelievers have entered. No. To me, it's just an excuse why not to go. All of these men who rejected God came to a place in their own life where they went, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm confronting a position and a place in my life where I am not in control. Now, what I believe will determine my future. And I say to every single one of us today, this wouldn't be great that we don't have a new year resolution to start, you know, I'm just going to get in the life right with God and go for God. But the reality is, it would be a great moment. We've passed a month into a new year. This could be your new year, simply by making that decision of saying, I'm going to put Jesus as number one, as Lord and Savior in my life. The next thing he says from the cross, which I love, is that, again, forgiveness is offered, is that Jesus never gives up on, any, on anybody. While there is breath, there is life, there is hope, and we must hold that position as well. The next thing he says, in the middle of this saving the, the souls of the world, he then goes, oh, wait a minute. Hey, mom, this is John. He'll be your son. And John, look after my mom. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is into the detail of relationships. He never gives up on relationships, no matter where they may be because of situations, circumstances, and strains of what has taken place has caused them to feel power and pressure of a relational breakdown. But Jesus is in the business. Hey, there may be something missing, but I'll help you manage it, massage it, so it'll still be okay. 
That's what I love about the kingdom of God and the house of God because it is the family of God. You may not have family on the outside, but when you come into the house and say, this is my house, my family, guess what? Everyone aligns with you, irrespective of what takes place in your own family circumstances. The next thing he says, which is incredible, amazing, powerful, the fourth thing, smack in the middle of it, he now says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you, no, 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 let's get this clear. And so many people have thought, well, why did Jesus, did he feel rejected by God? No, 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 no. Get your theology correct. Firstly, understand at the beginning, Father, forgive them. At the concluding remarks, Father, but smack in the middle, my God, my God, why have you? And it's not why have you, but why are we feeling? My God, Father, my God, Holy Spirit, Jesus making the call. He's calling out in the position of the triune God, the three aspects of God in holding one place, simply saying, I am feeling what the power of sin can do. And the power of sin, if it is not forgiven, just creates separation. Separation. You see, so often you say, oh, I'm a sinner. Well, you are, but what happens as a sinner? You get separated. What happens as someone who doesn't know God or find the family of God or find a union of relationship? You find distance. And guess what? Distance has a lot of distance. So many people said, oh, you know, when I go to hell, it doesn't matter. Have all my mates down there. We'll be partying. We'll go on hard. It's going to be great. doesn't matter. I'll be with my mates. No, you won't. You see, hell has been painted incorrectly by a lot of artists and their impressions. Hell is a place where you are and where you are alone. Why do people take their lives in this life? Because they feel alone and isolated. You see, sin's ultimate position is to create separation. People take their life in this life. And God is present. He is omnipresent. He is still around, even though we may reject him. But remember this, when all things come to a close, he removes himself, and then you are left truly to feel the power of separation, isolation, and loneliness. Why do we hold our position and go, wow, I don't know, I'd rather stay in the house, stay connected with Jesus purely because I don't want to live alone. And I'm a social guy. I love people. Why? Because we're made in his image. Let us, that is even God speaking of his position, let us. The next thing he says, he calls out, I thirst. What is that all about? Demonstrating his humanity. He understands where we are in life, the challenges we face in life. The next thing he says and I used to always think it was the final words. It is finished. No, it's not. It's the sixth of the seven things in which Jesus says, it is finished. Wow. Yeah, it's finished. Everybody there, Caiaphas and all the Roman rulers and all the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin was present and all those people who had mocked him and laughed said, yes, now he'll die. No, no, you see, you've got to understand what Jesus is saying. It's simply this, you're not in control, I am. I decide when I depart, not you. 
it is finished. At At that moment, his spirit came to a close, departed. What's that about? Simply, Jesus is still in your in control of your life, irrespective of how things may look. Isn't that fascinating? These aren't just statements. This is the gospel in seven statements of all the statements on what Jesus has said. And they are the most profound because they are the most impacting and life-changing for every single one of us. He is simply saying, you may think you're in control, but let me remind you, I'm in control. His final statement, seventh statement, which I love, is this. He says, it is finished. But then he goes, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Father at beginning, Father at the end. But the word trust, what's that about? He's simply saying, Father, I trust you. I'll draw this to a close very quickly to simply understand the most profound words that we all speak are our final words. You see, the gospel starts in forgiveness. We can't forgive ourselves. We can, but we need to be forgiven by someone prior to that. And that is someone greater than ourselves, and that is God himself. God has offered us all forgiveness. A brand new year, 2018, can be the greatest year or just another year of another year of another year or a year of the unexpected. But how we approach this year is simply as that we start to see the value of never giving up on people irrespective of what we think or where they're at. We never lose that position or that, that place in our own life is that, again, that God wants us to be in union as one. He's looking at us not as the mass, but as individuals. He understands where we are in our own walk and relationship, our own personal challenges we feel in life. He looks on and still reminds us, irrespective of your circumstances, it may look out of control, but I'm still in control if you have me in your life. It is never out of control if you have me in your life. But the last statement, quite fascinating. Father, into your hands I entrust. You see, the beginning starts, God says, this is my area of responsibility, but he also empowers us to an area of responsibility, which is trust. Jesus is showing that it starts in forgiveness, but it concludes with us trusting him, irrespective of our circumstances. Amen. I want to draw it to a close by asking you this. What would be your final words today? And to whom would you speak those words? Interesting, isn't it? What would you say? I don't know. Well, I said, if you were not going to be here by 12 midday, what words would you consider saying? And to whom would you speak? You would say to those that you love, the words in which possibly you wish you had said, but have never said. You may forgive people that, again, they have done horrific things, but you choose to release them. But you can't do any of those by yourself because you need someone greater than yourself to give you the power to find your position to say, I am forgiven. And when I am forgiven, I can now 
offer hope to others. See the power of family and relationship. See that, again, I don't have to live a life separated and alone, but in union as, as one. To understand that God understands you exactly because He's been through all things as we have. He is always in control. But will you trust Him in 2018?